Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Driving Force podcast. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst turned endurance athlete. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing world-class competitors in the sports and business worlds and have them share their perspectives on what it takes to remain driven with all that life throws at you. My guest today is a Taoist who teaches a new form of yoga in the Bible Belt. Glenn Brown is widely regarded as one of the best yoga practitioners in the world. After over 20 years of private yoga practice, Glenn developed a new form of yoga called Lion Flow Progressive Yoga, which he now teaches in Indiana. Along with teaching yoga at his studio, Glenn also teaches accredited yoga and Tai Chi courses as a professor at Indiana University Southeast and, and introduces to his students the various styles and histories of both. Finally, Glenn is an accomplished yoga competitor and in 2018 placed first nationally and fourth in the world championships. Ladies and gentlemen, my interview with Glenn Brown. Glenn, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to uh, to be on the podcast. Yeah, so um, before the interview, my dad mentioned to me that uh, you're also a poet. How often do you write? Yes. Uh, well, I write every day, but uh, I can also get swallowed up by returning emails and writing lesson plans and stuff like that. But I still continually write poetry and work on a couple of novels. And really, I find that's probably the truest part of myself and the hardest part to find comfort and confidence in. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what form of poetry do you typically write? So I usually write stream of conscious poems, uh, kind of like Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac from back in the forties and fifties. Uh, but also write haikus and sonnets and traditional poetry formats just to challenge myself. Mm -hmm. And you said you're also, or you have written some novels too. Yeah. I'm continually working on a couple of novels and, uh, lesson plans and, you know, I, I pretty much switch from one to the next to keep my mind occupied. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, yoga can kind of be thought of as poetry in motion, I think, especially the form that you developed, um, which we'll get into later. When did you first get exposed to yoga? Right, so I first got introduced to yoga while I was in high school. Uh, the story around that is... I was the last of six kids, and at that point in time, I was the last kid in the house. And uh, both my parents had been diagnosed with ter terminal illnesses. My father had cirrhosis and was on the, the donor list or the transplantee list. And my mom had Parkinson's, and it was uh, progressive and getting more so. And I was at home alone with them, and uh, at the same time, I was really having a, you know, a a time of losing my religion, they say, was wanting more information. I wanted to see more of what was out in the world as opposed to just what I'd been taught and introduced to as a child. And uh, all that really weighed on me. And my first semester of my junior year, uh, I almost flunked out. I didn't turn anything in. I did fine in class, but I just refused to do any homework. And my guidance counselor took me into his office and he researched me and saw that I had a decent IQ and uh, that my grades were fine up to that point. And I'd even already covered all my requirements. So 
uh, he asked me what was going on and I told him the situation and he gave me the option just to fill my schedule with what, um, with what I could focus on. And I decided to focus on art. Uh, so I filled my schedule with music theory and choir and drama and art classes. And, and at that time I really started to focus on that and the art led to yoga through my therapist, actually, um, with the depression that I was experiencing, my parents sent me to a therapist and she found through our conversations that art was a, a huge form of therapy and a great coping mechanism for me. So she suggested I focus on it more as well. So I did. I even stopped doing uh, the high school sports I'd been doing. Uh, I was a swimmer and had wrestled prior. And I got into Kung Fu and meditation and writing poetry. And I found that I was very inflexible. And with my meditation books, the first meditation book I was really into was uh, Journey of Awakening by Ram Dass. And he described in there, if you can't really sit comfortably yet, you should probably try some Hatha yoga. So I took that advice and I found a book, uh, Light on Yoga by Iyengar. And I was entranced looking at all these pictures of this, this old man doing amazing strength and flex flexibility postures. And, and uh, that, that just kind of um, reeled me in. And I really added a lot of yoga to my daily practice at that time, along with my Kung Fu stances and uh, meditation. And I've really found that the yoga helped me achieve my optimal best at the other things I was doing, the Kung Fu and the uh, clear mind for the meditation and for the writing. And as a junior and senior in high school, I was already saying that yoga and Kung Fu and writing was, that's what I wanted to focus on as a career because, you know, it made me happy. I couldn't really see putting the same amount of focus into something else. Right. And you said that you, um, you you were a swimmer and wrestled a little bit in high school. Where was pl was playing or and doing those sports just um, they just weren't enough of a of a coping mechanism for you. They didn't provide that same sort of I guess maybe escape that kung fu or, or therapy that kung fu and yoga did. Well, they they really didn't. I mean, uh, to clarify, I did um, wrestling more in my earlier years, like junior high, and I decided not to do it in high school because I wanted to be able to develop naturally. I didn't want to graduate high school weighing 110 pounds, being six foot two. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I quit the wrestling in high school and focused in the swimming. And I was a pretty good swimmer. I actually never got beat in my particular stroke, which was the breaststroke. But uh, what, when I got to the junior year and the grade problems, I actually wasn't uh, eligible to do the sports. And so that kind of led me to, to look at uh, the other things more seriously as just a form of keeping my physicality. But what I found with the Kung Fu and the yoga was that it was more intense form of self-expression that led to being able to perform more of your potential. And that's something I felt missing in all the sports before is like it was hard to get all your potential out. Like you get down with the race and you'd feel like oh, I could have poured on just a little bit more or, you know, wrestling, like, Oh, I could have done that one move 
better. <laughs> and I found with the Kung Fu and the yoga that the, the self-acceptance evolved and the diligence necessary for daily practice that the self-expression was more, both more self-accepting and and release more of your optimal potential. And uh, that was like a drug to me. That's more of what I wanted than actual uh, sport, you know, trying to compete for some goal. Mm -hmm. And would you say that you're a very competitive person? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, the way I approached competition growing up, like say back when I was still uh so doing the Christian thing as a junior high kid, uh, before each race or each wrestling match, I'd always say kind of a little prayer about hoping that I would do my best and also that my competitor would do their best so that we could, so that we could learn from each other and, and, uh, have the best experience. Right. And I continued that on even as a, kind of moved into Taoism, um, a lot of my morality stayed. I just was interested in more philosophy. And I found even with the yoga competition, which is something we'll probably talk about more later, that the sportsmanship involved with sport, you could say not all people who do sports are good at sportsmanship, <laughs> right? That, that's for sure. Right. And so I find in the definition that sportsmanship and yoga and Taoism and Kung Fu, they all share the same definitions of the diligence, uh, etiquette, <laughs> you know, trying to find your personal best, trying to treat others um, the, the way you'd want to be treated or even better the way they would like to be treated. And this upliftment of everybody by striving to be our best as opposed to uh just adequate you know yeah and so that that's why i really love sports and even why i love the the yoga sport because there can just kind of be this lull or this plateau where it's all self-love and pats on the back and really you know the struggle is real there's some things that that we really have that need work you know like our Obviously, our society is not perfect, and the way we treat each other is not perfect, and the way we treat ourselves is not perfect, you know, so there's some real work to be done outside of just patting each other on the back, you know. <clears throat> right. And uh, was it just the, like, let's just simply the fact that yoga just made you so happy that... Um, you just, you just made the decision that, um, I want to make, I want to teach yoga in order to make a living. Well, I think it was, it was more than that. Cause even beyond happy, like it doesn't just inherently make you happy. It makes you have to be more aware. You know, you could say yoga is like looking at yourself in a mirror with lots of intensity, <laughs> trying to really examine <laughs> what you see and, and accept it. So <clears throat> what I enjoyed about the yoga was it's it's tapping into your your mental clarity and beyond your clarity, like your intentions, like what you have to say, what is your voice? Um, and even beyond happiness, just a, 
raw, intense coping mechanism that is unparalleled, right? Uh, there's not enough good things to be said about a healthy coping mechanism that's already within you that you don't have to pay anything for. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So that's what really drew me into yoga. I, mean, I was, I came up with a, a family of teachers, you know, we weren't rich, we were low middle class and always struggling and, and for me, learning yoga in the beginning had nothing to do with the studio, but more the uh, the root of yoga, which was building a, a diligent home practice and uh, finding teachers that can help enrich that. Right, right. You, uh, I don't. You seem like a very uh, internal uh, person and very spiritual. Right. Well, you know, people say that sometimes it can be funny uh, to have a conversation at a dinner with a couple of guys and they're like, well, thank you for philosophizing and or whatever. And I felt like I was just talking, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So, I mean, I've described this before um, that I read poetry like I'm reading the newspaper. It makes sense to me, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of how my brain operates, I guess, more of a not so superficial level, just, you know, how you look and how you feel today, but you know, what's the core of what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. So why did you decide to develop a new form of yoga called line flow? Really it started in, in sports as early as, as junior high. Um, all my older siblings were, we're good athletes and I was always striving to, you know, beat their records or to, to keep up. And I found the best method of doing that was uh, personal practice. So from the, from grade school, I was putting together efficient series to, uh, to work out all the different parts of the body to do before and after practices and then to do more on the off season. And uh, I found over the years that uh, when I would meet a teacher that, that's what would stand out to them. The you could get a sense of that personal discipline, and that opened up a lot of doors for me uh, with the different teachers I met in life. So, okay, point me back to the question though. I was going off on something there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries. I was just uh, I was just asking. Um, why did you decide to develop uh, a new form of yoga called Line Flow? Right. This important question. I should stay focused. Right. So, <laughs> so I kept that personal practice forever. It was just part of who I was. And then when I found the Kung Fu and the yoga and the meditation, I found, you know, there were, there were definitely things lacking from that personal practice. So I started to mold it more. And then, uh, when I went into my first, uh, Bikram yoga class or hot yoga class, whatever we call it these days, uh, I took a silent class, which means there was no instruction and I just had to follow the teacher and I followed the teacher perfectly. They, they saw that there was some type of discipline there. I'd never experienced the poses before, but I seemed to hit all the details and pay thorough attention. And, uh, through that introduction, that teacher actually, she's my wife now, uh, but before she became my wife, she sponsored me to go to the training, which was really an amazing experience for me as a, you know, a 21, 22 year old boy. And 
learning the yoga, like I found I had to kind of let go of the personal practice I'd developed for a while so that I could let the postures I was trying to learn into my body. Meaning that my shoulders were tight, my back was tight, my legs were used to doing the horse stance a lot. So I had to kind of ease off the home practice for a little while just so I could hone in on this new form of yoga I was trying to learn and let these postures um, happen correctly in my body without so much uh, latent tension fighting everything I was doing. So I put down my personal practice, just did a little bit here and there for the time I was training to become a Bikram teacher. And then immediately after started training for the first uh, yoga competition. And at that first yoga competition, um, I had started practicing my best back bend more regularly. I wanted it to be great on stage, right? So I overdid it. I didn't warm up enough before I would practice or after I was just trying to get through my routine. So it was becoming more, you know, naturalized. And in doing so, I hurt my back and had to pick a different posture the day of the event. And, uh, and that was... That was eye-opening for me and as to the method of how you'd prepare yourself to just express what you're capable of without damaging yourself along the way to try and be better, <laughs> right? And that took me back to my, my daily practice because uh, in its sense, it was helping me to release my potential without perfect circumstances, meaning I didn't have to be in the middle of a 90-minute hot yoga class to hit my perfect standing bow, right? Mm -hmm. I could use the, the methodology of my home practice to warm up the body efficiently so that when I needed to perform, I was ready to perform without being worn out or have overused one part of the body. So it was that that eye-opening experience of, of hurting myself with the first competition that let me to to refine my home practice and uh, to dive deeper into it. And uh, since then, that was back in uh, 2003. Uh, it's just been a slow build since then. Uh, it was 2010 before I finally decided to like give it a name instead of my private practice. <laughs> right. And it, because of that, I mean, really what helped Lionflow develop was when I started teaching private lessons, I found I wasn't really inclined to just teach uh, the Bikram yoga postures. I wanted to teach the students who wanted a private lesson how to reach deeper into their potential and how to use maybe other postures to help them get better at the ones they already did. So I used my personal method for that. And uh, the idea at first was to teach them how to build short series which is something i still do um but in working with a lot of students that became different levels of class you know like 45 minutes an hour 15 an hour and a half that all followed the same structure from my home practice and, and uh, um, for, for people who don't know um what is, what do you mean by uh like short series short series so um the method that line flows built on is a way an equation right an equation to reach that optimal body without um, destroying yourself along the way 
right? Mm-hmm. Say like a good, a good example is if your neck hurts, you stretch it over and over again, hoping for it to feel better. But really just stretching it is going to irritate it and inflame it more and make the pain last longer. Whereas the same stretch could be made beneficial with the right postures around it. Say you lightly engaged the area first, then you more intensely engaged it, then you compressed it, then you stretch it. And if you do that, you're sending more blood flow through that area as opposed to trying to stretch the same amount of blood flow over more area. I like to use the comparison of uh, trying to stretch a dry rubber band compared to a fresh new one, right? Yeah. So the the sequence that I developed for, or the equation I developed for line flow, it could be used to build a whole class or it could be used to put very a few amount of postures together specific to what somebody needed to work on. <clears throat> if that, does that answer that question? Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it does. Um, it does. Thanks. Yeah. And how... How significantly does um, a line flow yoga class differ from, say, traditional Bikram? Well, you know, the difference is the sets and repetition. Um, And, you know, line flow is not in a hot room, right? Um, I find it the heat and the sweat takes away from the traction you need in particular postures and uh bikram has one arm pose where you put your arms into your body so it doesn't really need that same type of traction uh as putting your tricep on your thigh and trying to find some type of balance between the two if you're super sweaty you just you have to burn a lot more energy because you everything's going to be sliding off of everything else <laughs> right <laughs> yeah so the the heat's not there and like i was talking about i use that equation and and what the equation is is first focus then strengthen then compress then stretch and then relax right following this pose to pose and from sequence to sequence so that by the end um every part of your body's ready to perform its optimal best now what makes it different from the bikram uh and say Astanga and Vinyasa and, and all the other yogas would be that I had a mentality of trying all the classes. I, I, I like to learn. Uh, something my Kung Fu teacher instilled in me was the idea of l- learn to be the master of learning as opposed to just the master of one style, right? So you don't limit yourself. So have a core foundation that you that's your daily practice and your discipline, if you have that great foundation, you can build whatever structure on top of it you want and add the, all the frills and the bells and whistles. So the the structure I rely on is line flow, and I like to try all the other stuff. What I like to do as a teacher with line flow is prepare people for whatever style of yoga they might try next, meaning one style of yoga says, don't ever lock the knee, and then another one says, well, you're supposed to lock the knee, definitely, and you know, there's kind of this back and forth about who is right. And my study on yoga showed that it, it was never really specific on the postures like that. And what happened with these different modern styles is that they're performing poses specifically for whatever their intention is with the class, right? So my 
idea as a teacher is to teach students the different intentions for these different alignments. So in a line flow class, you'll do in a flow, uh, a traditional uh, warrior stance and a, a Bikram triangle and a few other variations of that so that you're working more muscle groups in that cookie cutter shape than just the one pose that, you know, the style believes in. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's something different about the line flow is this idea of neutrality that is actually a, a stronger foundation. You know, we can learn when to bend the knee and when to lock the knee and what is the usefulness of these different alignments at different times as opposed to uh, just the standardized mentality, right? So that's definitely quite different about the lion flow. And it is kind of like a martial arts style without kicking and punching. Being that I used uh, the idea, Tai Chi has this method called song, and it means not too hard and not too soft. And it's the idea of moving like you're moving through water um, constantly. So there's a little bit of tension to your mo motion that helps you feel it. And what I found was lacking in a lot of yoga classes outside of uh, time to teach people details was movement between postures being intentional. Oftentimes, just those simple movements were, were being done in a harmful way without people really knowing. They're just going for that final position. So in a line flow class, <clears throat> the movement between is very specific and the final position of the posture you could say it's less important than how you got there and learning to move in with control and with the right leverage and the right weight distribution uh as opposed to just going for it trying to get that exercise right so yeah it it can be challenging to people who've tried other yogas because they're trying to go at it the same way they would other styles. Whereas the mentality of the line flow yoga forms is to stay calm and to keep your breath calm and to do all these different poses from a, a place of calm power as opposed to strain or expectation, right? I like to think of it as a conversation with your body instead of an argument, right? Right. So those are a few differences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And it, it sounds like because um, you're so, uh, you know, you're also so focused on the movements involved in transitioning from pose to pose that more so than other forms of yoga, you really have to be kind of in the moment um, right. kind of all the time uh, during the class too. That and the fact that it's not about repetition. So it's a flow but it doesn't keep going back to the same place. So say in comparison to vinyasa, we're not doing the upward downward dog sequence in between everything. Or in comparison to the Bikram, we're not doing a savasana in between everything. Instead, you're going through a continuous flow that maybe that series has a break at the end of it, but you have to kind of go from pose to pose to pose to pose to pose and stay focused. So one of the great things I think available in a line flow class that's different from the others is this opportunity to work on the power of your concentration and your ability to interpret, right? And these are challenging things and they're not like the gimmick. They're not the most popular way to teach, but I find it's 
a huge power and potential that we have that can remain untapped if we just kind of go through the motions and you know just try to get that out of yoga you know just that that <clears throat> zinning out numb mind kind of i need to escape the world mentality i find if we actually excuse me clear my throat <clears throat> if there's this layer of concentration that you're having to uphold when you're practicing that when you're done you get to have that zen and that relaxation yep and that sensation that you're you're hoping to have but it's something that you've earned by your work as opposed to just expecting it to be there when you sit down to begin class right right and would you say that yoga and um, maybe your form in particular is um, a form of active meditation yes you know uh, moving meditation uh, concentration meditation you know there's the kind where you just try to find silence and or you know listen to the calming voice on whatever app is out right now <laughs> right mm -hmm. but then there's the kind that's more internal you know where you're learning to self-accept as you move through these the sequence of poses and you're not perfect at all of them yet right you're still having to learn um with tai chi something that they talk about is the muscle memory learning to move from your muscle memory as opposed to your analytical brain if you do that you can be calm and present while you're moving through the form whereas if you're up in your analytical brain as you move through the form uh, you're, you don't have any flow. You're mentally taken over the whole time. And when you're done, you can't remember a damn thing that you did to be able to analyze it now and do it better the next time. So there's this idea of, uh, you know, the self-acceptance of emotion, letting yourself into that part of your mind, right? So that would be the meditation, letting yourself in, letting yourself interpret having little faith in yourself that you can interpret and in that even if you do it poorly, that you'll be able to refine it over time. Um, and that, that state pulls that state of mind pulls us out of the usual hurricane that's going on. And we might even just be standing next to that hurricane, but it's a little bit of reprieve so that when we come back to the hurricane, we can look at it with a little bit more clarity, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely moving meditation. And something else different about lion flow is that it's very specific to <clears throat> warming up for sitting down for breathing techniques with a moment to have silent meditation at the end and then warming down after that breathing technique. Whereas you know, most of the class is being physical and doing this and that. This is kind of the, the way I portray the root of yoga. Like, the word asana actually means to sit on the ground and what you're sitting on. <laughs> and over time, we've progressed that meaning to pose and posture. But really, all the poses and postures were made to make you better at sitting on the ground with alignment and clear mind so that you could meditate. So I use that idea in the line flow. I use all those poses to get you ready to sit and learn a breathing technique and have a moment of silence and then how to properly warm down from that. So it was kind of my expression of, you know, 
the history of yoga the way I perceived it. You know, the the goals of yoga and building a home practice and what is group practice uh, from my perspective, which was a little different. You know, I didn't even decide to call it Lime Floor to, to make it its own school. Instead, I'd been out to different studios and classes and seen many things to see that, yes, what I'm doing is different and it has validity and it has its own specific things that it can teach students uh, that will enrich their journey wherever they go next. Right. And how did you decide on the name uh, Lion Flow? Lion Flow. So this is interesting. So my wife and I used to do, or we still do a, a demo together, uh, yoga and Kung Fu kind of dance. And we were looking for names for this. We uh, decided upon Lion Flower. Um, I was thinking of myself as the lion and the Kung Fu and all this and her name actually means flower. Uh, Ayana means flower. And so it was kind of a combination of us. And then when I went on to YouTube to uh, create us a, a YouTube page for our videos, the name Lion Flower was taken by some kind of medicinal company out in California. So I shortened it to Lion Flow. <laughs> and for some reason, that really stuck with me. I, it really personified what I was trying to teach from the form, you know, uh, this way to release your best, you know, to, to be the king of the jungle, if you will, yep. <laughs> to walk, to walk like a lion as opposed to a house cat. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. That, that's really the, the intention of lion flow yoga. And so uh, the name, it, it stuck with me and it, it wasn't being used, you know, uh, a lot of kind of fluffy names for yoga, yes? <laughs> or the people who like to name it after themselves, like, you know, and that has its own inherent problems, which we've seen lately. Um, so I think it's it's useful to name it something that's not you, so that when you're not around or when your teachers are out teaching what you taught them, that it's making traction with people as individuals as opposed to people following this person's name <laughs> you know it's, so lion flow stuck for many reasons those are those are a few but yeah it came from uh, having to shorten it for a youtube page got it <laughs> right and on the uh the subject of you know following something you know somebody's name uh have you seen the bikram netflix documentary well, I do. I like to stay informed and to, to be able to answer questions when they come at me. Um, <clears throat> but that being said, I really have no desire to to benefit myself by by talking down about somebody else. You know, even whether it be the victims or it be Bikram or the the other victims that we're making now by our little shame wagon that we like to build <laughs> with social media. Uh, I don't really, I mean, I appreciate everybody's experience. You know, I, I find in this time, in this particular climate, I don't think people would appreciate my story as much, which is kind of disappointing about the experience I had at training. And I, and I really feel like even sharing that experience, uh, it's like you gotta give people their time. It, to process information you know a lot of us had a different experience with bikram and saw things a different way 
but I don't want to put that out there as like, that's my opinion because I wasn't always around him. I wasn't even interested in his personal life per se. I was just there to learn yoga. Really. I went because my wife sponsored me to go and I really had already lost that follower mentality before I got there. I was just there for information and Bikram was a great teacher. That's what I saw. I mean, I saw other things, but, uh, I don't really, you know, man has a family, the victims have their experiences. Uh, I don't want to delegitimize either person to my own benefit, if that's a good answer. <laughs> uh, it is. It's, uh, and it's an interesting answer. Um, definitely not one I, I expected. But um, so do you have no interest at all in, in watching it for those reasons? Oh, I watched the whole thing. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, I, I, I like to be informed, but I'm just not trying to push my opinion on other people uh, about this situation. Like I said, it's, I think it's personal. Um, I don't think we should be shaming people out of the name they have in their studio. I can see separation of art compared to artists, you know? And I will even get into this with the Taoism um, when we talk about that. But there's this there are other dimensions to people there's there's part of you that you see when you're looking at yourself and there's parts of you you don't see right and i've learned to accept that with people over time that you know there there are parts of my i'm going to agree with and parts i'm going to disagree with but nevertheless we all have a message for each other and we all have something we can learn and you know sometimes what we learn is what not to do you know and that can also help us be better but I think the, the real lesson to be had is we need to treat each other better. We can expect more in that way. We should treat each other better. Yeah. And that applies to whatever documentary comes out, however many times the same subject is rehashed. And we need to keep that in mind in our little social media generation that our words matter, our actions matter how we treat each other matters right people we agree with and those we don't right people right. who've done good things and people who've done terrible things uh we all have our place we all have things to learn from each other like i said whether that's what to do or that's what not to do <laughs> mm -hmm. right right and are you are you pretty active on social media uh, out of, I guess, obligation, <laughs> you know, like this is, I mean, I'm almost 40 now. I'm 39. I guess I can claim the thirties for another few months. Uh, but I graduated high school without knowing how to type. <laughs> so I didn't think computers were going to make it. I thought they were cumbersome and burdensome and, you know, like how could something so inefficient make such an impact in our culture but you know of course i was wrong um and as i've grown up in in the adult world and had to do business i was there to see the transition of no cell phones and no websites to you know it being like you're crazy if you don't have a website for your business or you know if people aren't signing up ahead of time and uh you know i've i had to be drug along at times to to get into the the modern climate but you know there's 
we have to learn to evolve, you know, nothing's permanent. So I've tried my best to stay involved with the Facebook and the Instagram and keeping up my website. But it's it truly is like a never ending uh, job of editing and and things like that <laughs> that uh, yeah that I I accept. <laughs> I'll do I'll do it, damn it! But I don't have to like it all the time. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I don't yeah. let the I don't let it follow me around. I can't really post something every day, and even I'll put this out there for these young generations coming up. It's not a good idea to tell people when you're going on vacation, like every time and for how long. <laughs> for it's true. us, it was kind of for obvious reasons growing up, but nowadays it's like it happens all the time. But I've seen it back in the early days of Facebook. We saw students that uh, they'd post where they're going on Facebook and they'd get robbed while they're out of town. Jeez. So uh, just to put that out there, you know, you don't always have to be like real time with your social media. <laughs> Let it marinate and post when you've edited, <laughs> right? Yeah, those are uh, those are those are wise words for sure. I'm not even a just big to, big social media guy myself, so uh, just to put that out there. Right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Um, going back to uh, yoga and competing. Um, I guess, what are your thoughts on yoga as a competition? It seems kind of very anti-yoga. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the word anti and yoga really don't even coexist. Uh, yoga means unity, you know, and to deny the competition from that unity, that's denying part of ourselves. Like this has to do with a little bit of like self-hate and division and you know, when we carry bad things into good things, um, I think that the connotation that yoga is not like uh, appropriate for sport is really only attached to negative mentalities about competition. Because uh, from a positive standpoint, like I said earlier, uh, yoga and sportsmanship, same thing, <laughs> same exact thing. So really as opposed to yoga being just this spiritual thing, this zone out, really the only reason we can practice yoga as widely and broadly across the world as we do now is because there were different groups of people that broke away from the religion of the time to teach more people about different aspects of yoga. And from that, it spread and became more about a personal journey as opposed to just something owned by religion and spiritualism and whatever. Uh, personally, I've had, you know, what people would call spiritual experiences and meditative experiences. Um, but I, I found that just made it more personal. Like, as opposed to thinking I was special, I realized, you know, everybody could have had these kind of experiences and they're just not telling you about it, <laughs> right? You know, as an example, you know, supernovas happen every day but we still kind of think of them as special <laughs> right mm -hmm. so anyway you know point me back in the right direction i get off on a tangent <laughs> oh i just wanted to get your thoughts on yoga as a competition um to a oh, lot yes. of people yoga seem, as a yeah. competition so i think it's a beautiful thing you know there's there's this um there is 
a lack of self-acceptance, you could say, in viewing your performance afterwards or how you feel when you're about to go up on stage. Those are perfect opportunities to work on self-acceptance, expressing your best, upliftment of other people, um, exposing yoga to more types of people that more than people that just want to do meditation and spiritual work i find personally that uh work on the asana and on the personal self it was a very spiritual experience for me right even being on stage and uh the experience of people observing you while you're expressing your thing uh it's it's a really amazing energetic experience um, that approached with the right attitude is beautiful right you can approach it with a totally different attitude and it's it's not beautiful anymore and that i would say that applies even just to how people go to class you could think it's just about going to class and banging your way through the motions and you don't have to be kind to anybody you can be kind of a jerk to the teacher but at least you got what you needed out of it to me, yoga is not so much about the class you're doing, even historically. It's about the attitude you come into class with and the attitude you approach the postures with. And I think that competition helps to exemplify those attributes and to give you an opportunity to work on those particular things. And uh, as a coach, outside of just being an athlete, I found it's a great path to, to helping people get off the plateau that is often found in yoga. Like people plateau. So now they are just going in for, you know, a little therapy, a little self-help, a little clear mind. Whereas if you can break the plateau, if you can find the ladder off of there, there's so many more things that yoga has to offer you than just make, making your way through those motions in that room whenever you have time to schedule it, Right. <laughs> So I think it's beautiful. It's a beautiful community. There's so many different styles of yoga and people involved in it uh, that I find it's more yoga-like going to yoga competition than it is going to, say, like a yoga festival where, you know, you have everybody kind of competing each other business-wise, right? Right. Whereas in the competition, everybody has to kind of lay that down and realize that we're all coming from different walks, and that we're all coexisting to have our time on this stage and to uh, to be there for each other as we each get our turn on the stage. You know, uh, it, I like that neutrality. I find that neutrality really expresses yoga to myself. You know, it, it's a beautiful community I've enjoyed being a part of for uh, since 2003. <laughs> it's been a long time, I guess. And do you do you get nervous um, each time before you go on stage to compete? You know, I I did. Um, I even had to do a stage fright when I was doing plays in high school. But uh, I found it was that was probably one of the most useful parts about it because even when you're going in to teach a yoga class or whatever kind of class it is, there are these stage nerves that come up that kind of take your best away from you. You know. But if you have a little method of practice to open up your best, you have a little practice of meditation to clear your mind, and you do it diligently, you start to master those things. Like In the end, I found I could walk on stage and enjoy 
every part of it, um, every wobble, every sound coming out of the audience, all the energy I could feel from the audience, all the energy I was giving back, um, that that was really, after breaking through the wall of being nervous, there was something really beautiful to be experienced that, that made all the struggle worth it, you know? But funny enough, talking about being nervous, doing these kind of interviews, that's what makes me nervous. I'm like, you know, <laughs> I know I talk country and I tend to ramble on. I'm like, oh God, Glenn, clean it up, you know, be specific. <laughs> this stuff makes me nervous. <laughs> uh, no, no, no worries. You're, you're, you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you change your do you change your daily yoga practice significantly as you get ready for competition? No, uh, I use I use the methodology methodologies that I've mentioned um, for getting ready. Like I find people often like when they're getting ready to go on stage, they're trying to get better. <laughs> when I'm getting on stage, I'm trying to become 100% in tune with what I'm currently capable of. <laughs> right. So that, that means a diligent practice that allows you to see different postures and what your capabilities in those postures are currently. And uh, I would build a routine out of things I felt comfortable in. And then I would uh, warm up and down for those things uh, using my you know usual daily practice and maybe by using the, the line flow equation to put something specific together uh, based on the postures I was using for my routine. So uh, I just used more of my lion flow yoga mentality. I find often I don't even really go to the competitors' classes when I'm competing because I don't want to feel competitive and I don't want to wear myself out by trying to compete with people in a class before I go on stage. So I found I, I enjoyed the personal space and the personal zone before I compete um, just warming up just enough to do my best on stage instead of trying to wear myself out <laughs> right right so so it, like so specifically to the question i i change my daily routine only to help me warm up uh safely and therapeutically for the poses in my routine when you're and when you're coaching someone for a yoga competition do you like specifically set up a, I don't know, a routine of postures that they'll most, uh, they'll, they'll excel at most and kind of work, help them work through that as they prepare? Right. Well, I find as a coach, um, I try to help people get off the, the over exercising train. Um, oftentimes, we're trying to do the poses we're good at too much. Like I ex explained from my own experience, I try to do my, my deepest backbend too much, and then I couldn't do it on the stage because I'd already done it too much. So I try to help people find a way to warm up and down and practice their poses without over-practicing their poses. So there's probably a thousand poses they could use to get better at the one they're going to do on stage that aren't the pose they're going to do on stage. So I kind of use that to help build them extra routines and ways to build all the fundamental parts of the postures that they need to, to get better at. 
so that they don't have to over practice their routine poses but when they do practice them they can start to feel like they're getting a better handle on them that they're feeling more natural and strong and open and uh, so it's kind of a you know a flanking maneuver right? <laughs> go, <laughs> go around the difficult posture using all these other ones to get better at the attributes and then that way when you practice the pose you're less likely to hurt yourself and to achieve more of your potential when you do it right so you're you're building clean muscle memory as opposed to a strained and pained muscle memory <laughs> so that you can emulate something natural on stage as opposed to something forced. Does that make sense for the question? It does. Yeah, it does. It does. Thank you. Um, and you've done, you've done some judging uh, work too in yoga, right? Yes. What are, so, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, go go ahead with the question. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, what are some of the things that you look for when when judging a competitor? Uh, so it it's really based on body alignment, breath, and uh, you know visible struggle, right? So those are easy things to judge, especially you look at yoga postures a lot. So I'm looking at straightness of spine, weight distribution, uh, the leverage, right? So like standing bow, you might get a deduction for how much your your top leg is bent, but you might get another deduction for the line between the bottom foot and the straight line over top of it. Like how far away are you from that straight line? So um, it's really looking at the postures uh, geometrically. That's how they're being judged. I see. Yeah. When when's your next competition so i've been coaching for uh since i won in 2018 uh won the usa nationals i decided after that i mean i, I spent 16 years trying to win that damn championships so <laughs> i was kind of thing do i just keep going back and you know trying to win again and again or do i just enjoy the competing aspect but Really looking back over the years, um, there's a couple years that I had taken off just to coach, and those years was able to build bigger teams and help the other athletes more with their routines and with their just progress in their practice overall. And that's really more exciting to me. I, I love helping people, and then there's this whole element of, oh no, what are they going to do on stage? You know, so it it gets. It, it challenges me in different ways and I'd even say more ways just trying to coach. So I, I don't know when I'm going to compete again. I've told people that maybe uh, when I hit the senior plus division or it's not senior plus adult plus, so that's uh, 50 and over. So that gives me another 10 years to train and get ready. You know, <laughs> that, that might be my next competition, but uh, this year I'm actually hosting the national competition here in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. And that's that's a pretty exciting venture, you know, all the athletes coming into this area and trying to set things up so they can get a good view of what what it, this area is about and and you know, see my stomping grounds and where I met my teachers and and that all, that entails a lot of work, a lot of prep, a lot of meetings, but it's I, I love the work. I just love it. And even the 
all the little frills that come with it, getting to see other people's experience and um, working with venues and introducing what is yoga competition to whole new groups of people. I mean, I've really had a battle in my own area, like building a team over and over again each year, best I can, um, dealing with the adversity against competition between different studios and, and working with some that would let me in. And uh, it, it's really been like, I, I like to describe there's a yoga party going on and there's a yoga war going on. <laughs> and I've had to live in the war zone for decades, you know, being peaceful and introducing the information and being kind, but having to, it feels almost like starting over, like every season I'm teaching uh, new competitors and I look forward to this national competition, lighting a bit more of a fire under this community about what is it really? Like, why do I love the competition so much? Why did I dedicate so much time and, you know, what it did for my practice and myself, uh, trying to make that more uh, noticed so that other people can take advantage of the same thing, right? So the the competition has become the challenges behind the curtain instead of on the stage. And I enjoy that thoroughly. Right. And is it similar to martial arts in the fact, um, in the sense of like some studios won't like think they're kind of the holy grail and won't accept sort of other ideas or, you know, you to come in and teach a seminar to their school because they, they just re- would, 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 would reject that. Yeah, I mean, that's been a huge uh, challenge for the line flow in particular, but even just uh, for myself as a teacher of, uh, of many different styles uh, that, you know, some are teaching lock the knee or some are teaching don't lock the knee. I've been invited into studios that wanted me to teach an advanced class, but told me beforehand, okay, we don't want you to teach Lotus because we don't believe in that. We don't want you to do this and we don't, you know, and I, I can appreciate where they're coming from and I even try to accommodate the best I can because I want to work with all the different studios. Cause what I've found is this standing too firm uh, is the division, not really seeing that there are different ways to use these different postures. Uh, we can have our methods and, and really be diligent with them without being, you know, without having to talk negative about each other, I find it's a type of advertisement where you're trying to make yourself look good by making somebody else look bad. And it's, it's not necessary, but it is ingrained in our mentality, just like you said, in the martial arts, you know, it's not even really part of the martial arts, but it's kind of ingrained in our mentality. So we bring that with us, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) yeah, both martial arts and yoga share the same, uh, philosophy of three traits i'd like to share because this kind of leads into the taoism we're going to talk about so yep the three traits of yoga are love moderation and humility (laughs) right the three traits of taoism which is kind of the root of kung fu and qigong and tai chi um the philosophy behind those things the three traits of taoism are compassion frugality and humility now, it's really a lack of humility to think that you're standing on the higher ground and that everybody else is wrong. It's really a, a mentality of consumerism and trying to make sure 
that your customers think that other teachers are teaching them wrong so they come back to you <laughs> and it's uh it's not useful i hope for the community that we start teaching more about what are the qualities that we have to offer as opposed to I'm better at this than them because of this reason. <laughs> right. Right. And now uh, going into Taoism, what, what exactly is Taoism? Uh, I know when I Googled it on Wikipedia, it seems um, kind of hard to get the grasp of kind of what the essence of it is. So the simple answer for Taoism, uh, what is it? Uh, Tao means river. So the idea is that all things are energy and they're moving in a river of energy together. Um, but what's that mean? Right? So I like to use the example of a cup. So we can only visually experience the cup one side at a time. We can turn the cup, but we're still only experiencing one side of the cup. And that's visually. We're only seeing things 2D. So we're only really experiencing uh, half of what's directly in front of us, visually. But we can experience things in a deeper level. So say we're, say we appreciate the cup. We're grateful for the cup, right? Now we're experiencing the cup beyond what we see. So with this mindset of gratitude and an acceptance of what's known and what's unknown to us in that gratitude, we can experience the whole universe at the same time, right? We can, ex we can appreciate the person standing in front of us and the things about them that we don't know. Right. And we can have an acceptance of things like the current uh, climate in our society and know that there's a purpose behind it. You know, a, a wave's going to build up and a wave's going to break. And that there's going to be some type of a purpose to it all, right? And even if there's not, there's purpose in that, <laughs> right? <laughs> so Taoism is really this, you know, it's like I don't preach about it much because it's not about getting people to believe what you believe. It's more just an acceptance of that things are, you know, that, I, I am both a good person and I have, you know, darkness within me that I'm working on, you know, and that I know that and I can be okay with that and I can do the work. What you'll find is if we try to demonize, right? Demonizing is di division. So we demonize something, we make it inhuman, we make it something we can't accept whether it be about another person or about ourself. And that's limited. You know, if, if we're grateful for somebody, who somebody is, despite the things we don't know about them, uh, we've experienced a more full version of that person than just the superficial layer, right? So I find Taoism is a way of, of living in gratitude. It's kind of life as poetry is kind of the way I view it. You know, that it's a matter of being grateful and living in awe and being kind to one another and trying to reach your potential as opposed to, uh, you know, do whatever it takes to get to the top. It's more about, you know, follow the way, um, get there when it's time, <laughs> you know, is that 
hopefully that was a little clarity on what is Taoism. It is. It is. Thank you. Uh, where did it originate? Was it in the uh, the Far East? So Taoism originated in China. Um, uh, and uh, funny enough, around the same time that uh, Patanjali's was writing the Yoga Sutras, uh, this book called the Tao Te Ching was put together. Um, in both instances, for Patanjali's and uh, the Tao Te Ching, there's kind of myth, Is was it one person, was it many masters, because there's so much information and compiled in such a elaborate, user-friendly way that now we don't know whether it was one people or many, but this was around uh, 500 to 700 BC is when Taoism came around in China. And it's kind of, it's actually like a, a national prize, you know, like something they're proud of, like the original religion of China, even before Confucianism, even before Buddhism made its way over, um, there was Taoism. Got it. Are, so is Zen Buddhism and um, like stuff like Chinese medicine related to Taoism? Yeah, I'd say uh, Chinese medicine more so because it was about, you know, it was hermits that lived in the mountains and were minimalist and uh, philosophers and passed down information generation to generation. So the, the Chinese medicine definitely uh, came from the Taoism and uh, evolved. So did the Qigong and the Kung Fu and the Tai Chi. This is the root of all of them. Um, you could say with my Kung Fu experience was actually more about the holistic side as opposed to the fighting. And that, that led me to the Taoism, you know, practicing the forms and the stances and the breathing uh, for the act of practicing it, not to lead me toward, you know, the next fight, but just for myself, um, you know. But as far as Zen Buddhism, the way it differs is Taoism is is a philosophy, like the things that are described to you. We're all a river. We're all flowing together. Um, Zen Buddhism would have some similarities, but it would also have uh, like a godhead, you know, something to be worshipped. Um, in some divisions of the Buddhism, there are different sections. One that believes in Buddha as a god, and one that believes we're all the Buddha, right? So it has similarities, but its difference would be that it is a philosophy uh, with no, you know, no messiah. <laughs> right. Right. Um, do you do you meditate in the, I guess, traditional sense of kind of, you know, sitting cross-legged and like in a room and kind of clearing your mind? Uh, yes, and uh, and definitely more than that. I mean, meditation's been an integral part of my life. But some really amazing events that, that changed the course of my life uh, came after meditation, and uh, and because of meditation. And you know, in the modern world, there's more accessibility. You know, books and apps and ways to get involved, and uh, I'm. I'm all for those things. I think it's great that there's accessibility. And I think beyond that accessibility, though, 
will be uh, returning to the root, you know, learning to just sit without any extras, um, without your cell phone and without your music and just in nature or just in your house or just in your car. Really, the elements of meditation are meant to be taken well beyond like the perfect circumstances, you know. So for me, I definitely have like the times I meditate and the different visualizations I like to practice and the silence, um, the silent time I like to get. But as far as meditation is so broad, you know, calming myself down with a few breaths or with the Tai Chi form in the right part of the day, I also use those those methods of meditation. Uh, and when I teach meditation, I try to approach it from a neutral ground, just like the yoga style. Uh, so I'm not leading people toward uh, a God or a particular Messiah or a particular religion's beliefs about meditation, but more their ability to, to go within, to turn the lens inward and to get what they need out of it. Um, whatever religion they came from or didn't come from, you know? So I think meditation is definitely something that is, uh, useful and should be used more and it is used more than we know and it's just now in our country getting weight and it's been around for a long time in it in china it's been around for so long that mindful meditation which is out of the buddhism uh is used in psychology it is accepted part of psychology this form of meditation uh, even when my father-in-law had heart surgery, they wouldn't let him leave the hospital until he performed the breathing techniques they were trying to teach him. Wow. So it it's more pervasive than we realize once we understand what really is meditation, this concentration connected to breath that has intention, right? That's a lot broader definition than than the way we originally think about sitting down cross-legged with their music on. Right. 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 And Qigong, um, and Kung Fu is, you know, a form of meditation. And, um, from what I've heard, uh, you have an interesting story about how you met your, your Sifu and, and Qigong instructor, right? Yeah. Qigong and Xing Yi, which is a form of Kung Fu. And, and Qigong is actually like the grandfather of Kung Fu. Like it was these stances and movements, like you said, done for meditation and, and for exercise that, uh, you know, were eventually blended in and uh, evolved into, into other forms like Kung Fu and Tai Chi. Tai Chi being a form of Kung Fu. But yeah, so meeting my teacher, that is an interesting story. So I'll start with being thrown out of a Kung Fu school when I was 18. So my first experience with the Kung Fu school, I was private. I was invited in. There's only three people in my class. Um, I was really excited. always wanted to do fighting. Uh, schools would, had only gotten to do wrestling because it's what my parents would let me do. So when I got to make the choice, I, I joined a Kung Fu school, and I was not flexible or coordinated enough, or at least that's what my teacher told me when he kicked me out. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, I've viewed this different ways over the years, like he's such a jerk or, you know, but, you know, I've had over 20 years hindsight. Now I can really see that that, that, uh, failure 
changed my life for the better in so many ways. I, I started practicing the horse stance in my daily practice every day after that. And, uh, that and what was, is, and what is the horse stance for people that don't know? So for those familiar with yoga, it's like goddess pose with your toes pointed forward instead of out. And for those who don't know that, if they know ballet, it's kind of like, a, I think it's called the third position, but with the toes pointed forward. And for the layman, it's just separate your feet about three feet and then keep your spine straight as you sit down. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It looks like you're riding a horse if, uh, if you look at it. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was a big part of my workout too, doing the horse stance. Even when I was a dishwasher, I would, the the rest of the staff thought I was kind of weird because I would spend hours in the horse stance washing dishes. <laughs> um, so that you know, it was also useful for not having to get in fights because maybe they're a little intimidated, you know. <laughs> but uh, so, like I said, being kicked out of that kung fu school like it really drove me. I wanted to keep this athleticism about my life and. Getting out of high school, I didn't go right to college. I started working, and uh, I really like. I, I love physicality. I'd ride my bike like between towns to different jobs like every day, and and I do my workouts on the side like whenever I was going through a park. And uh, one day I got off of work from washing dishes, and I went and sat and meditated. Uh, one of my favorite places by a lake in this park that's actually close to where I live now. And as I was sitting there meditating, I saw uh, some form of lightning strike right in front of Louisville, which is across the, uh, the, the river from where I live or Louisville, if you're not from the area. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and so when I saw this lightning and I guess to describe it, it looked like a, like a straight, light in the middle and a big cone of light around it so what i'm saying is it didn't look normal (laughs) to me and it was special enough to me that i walked from where i was straight that direction um through my town across the bridge all the way down the riverfront uh, meditating and practicing along the way and when I got to the riverfront of Louisville, about where I'd seen um, the lightning or whatever it was, I came across a Kung Fu teacher and one of his students who was practicing forms. And we started talking and ended up he was from England and he was just in town for a Kung Fu tournament. And we got to talking and I asked him about, you know, what styles he taught and kind of told my background and he invited me to come back and talk to him later and uh, i remember this one really odd moment um, before he invited me to a training at his school in england where i was sitting with him i was nervous about it because i'd had these really strange experiences around practicing uh, my my daily discipline and so i asked him do you have have you had experiences that you didn't know who to talk about when it came to practicing your Kung Fu? And he kind of looked at me and uh, got me to stand up and walk outside with them and started like talking about the weather and stuff instead. But I could tell like he had some connection to what I'd asked him. And 
through that conversation, he invited me to England to participate in a more internal martial art, which, you know, some people make fun of because there's very gimmicky forms of it out there. But uh, it's not about the no inch punch. That's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> but internal martial arts, what it's really about is it's the yoga of martial arts. It is what is physically going on inside of you biochemically going on inside you when you do this stance or when you throw these punches or when you do sets or you know it's 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 the methodology it's the root right so he invited me to that training and um it was specific to the internal martial arts we learned shing yi and five animal forms and five element forms and uh qi kong to go along with it all this within a matter of a couple of weeks. We went over acupressure and all that. So it's kind of like the modern trainings where they pump you full of information real fast and then can you go out into the world and whatever happens, happens. <laughs> well, that, it was one of those kind of trainings, but it was really special to me um, because he invited me to that training knowing that I had no school, like no martial arts school affiliation and no belt. And the reason he invited me was purely based on, you know, the way I came across him. Like I talked about earlier, there are these opportunities that opened up in life because the teacher could tell I was disciplined, that I had some type of discipline and that I was serious and I wasn't going to waste their time. And through just being able to translate that information, um, that led to some really amazing things. And, uh, going to do that kung fu training with him was really special um it and it also about destroyed my mind when i got home because he gave us this idea of practicing things 100 days in a row to burn them into the mind which is a good practice i still teach it but i try to do everything i learned for 100 days in a row including the meditations and i about drove myself insane <laughs> too much meditating right <laughs> you know so really the idea of that concept was to to do what i do now like to work on pieces at a time 100 days in a row and to have a practice on top of that as well but don't try to practice every damn thing for 100 days in a row all day long like the practice would li literally take me like four hours every night to try and get through all the things i was doing and Really, that all led to a lot of uh, uh, anxiety and self-hate. Really, the, at the end of that journey was 9-11. Um, I had just started trying to teach at a place in Louisville. I was broke. I didn't have a car or bike. I walked there to teach <laughs> and, uh, on, and had to cross the bridge. So on 9-11, you know, the day that the buildings came down, 2001 i'd been on that long journey leading to that point trying to practice every day and do my thing and then i was walking to teach across this railroad bridge that you know technically you're not supposed to walk across it <laughs> and a police officer met me in his car at the halfway point of that bridge <laughs> so you know that the whole country was on high alert so here i am thinking i'm about to be arrested but the guy had me put my hands in his car and he went through my backpack and all he found were journals and books and pencils and and he let me go but he made me go back 
across the bridge the same way I'd come. <laughs> so that meant for me, there's no way I could possibly walk to this place I need to be tomorrow for this class and with energy or make it in time or anything. So that experience actually was like a panic attack for me. Like I felt like nobody really wanted to learn internal martial arts. And I had put a lot of time and energy into that and that, Nobody really cared about the poetry I was writing, and I would put a lot of time and energy into that. And it kind of put me in a place of uh, self-reflection that lasted for uh, for quite some time. And But in that time, I developed more of my home practice. And at the end of that little or long panic attack is when I decided to walk into a, a, my wife's yoga class for the first time to, to maybe start down a different journey like maybe like all the things i was using wasn't really clicking or i wasn't getting my full potential yet you know that's like i said i wanted to reach into my full potential so literally a year after i met my kung fu teacher or excuse me not met him after i'd gone to his training i walked into my wife's class for the first time and uh and went to the the teacher training for that style of yoga six months later <laughs> and uh, never looked back. You know, after going to the teacher training, um, I did continue to develop my own style. This all kind of bleeds together. I know I'm kind of running all the questions together, but at those experiences, the reason my teacher recognized me was my home practice. The reason my wife recognized me was my home practice. So when I got back from Bikram training and, started teaching 10, 11 classes a week for a few years. Um, I went back to my home practice, you know, and that's what I love the most. And still, even now, it's what I go back to for my own therapy. Uh, Cause I find anytime I try something new, I'm sore somewhere new. <laughs> so my home practice is the best base to go back and do therapy and to, to rejuvenate and to gain the strength and openness again. Uh, but it all stemmed from, yes, meeting that Kung Fu teacher because I decided to walk from where I was. It's about 12 miles, to put it in perspective. Wow. Where he was. Yeah. And it, it, sound, it was seemed like perfectly normal to me at the time. But I, I mean, looking back, it's strange. It's even hard for me to talk to people about it. I don't put it out there. I'm more trying to incorporate it into the Lion Flow book that I'm writing now. Uh, but it was an enriching experience, you know, like just taking this walk and it definitely has to do with synchronicity. And when the student is ready, the teacher will appear like all these old philosophies. And uh, it felt like I got to fall inside of that philosophy and that I still get to continue to live that way. And I feel I feel grateful right, for that, that experience and for uh, what's come after. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a pretty crazy story. Contrary to almost common sense, you went towards the lightning instead of away from it. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I like to compare it to the, uh, you know, the Jedi, which is, you know, I left out a great opportunity to compare Taoism to uh, the Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> so Star Wars, they used old religions to write the basis of the Jedi culture, right? So you can look at the force is the Tao, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, 
another piece of the Star Wars that kind of plays in is, you know, all the perspective Jedis have to go through the creepy vision in their mind or in the woods and see their worst fears exemplified and before they can reach the other side. <laughs> so I had my creepy little vision and walk through the woods <laughs> here in, uh, in Southern Indiana and Louisville. <laughs> right. And yeah. really what the experience taught me was that there's, there's amazing things out there that we can't really quantify. When we try to live too standardized, when we make our day too much of a routine that we limit how much of the, the craziness and mystery of the world and universe that we're going to get to experience. And I like to use this analogy for my students. It's, you could look at your day and even your week and your month and your year is like this little wheel that keeps going through the same route, right? And that anytime, if you want to experience change or you want to change things up, take a step off of that wheel in any direction and you will be led to some new information. You will add something to that wheel when you come back to it because inevitably we're going to fall back on the wheel. <laughs> but if we take little ventures off of it, we come back with more. And uh, I like to relate that to one of my favorite books in high school, uh, On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Had a little piece of philosophy I've carried with me my whole life is that never turn down an unexpected invitation to travel. Right. Well, I haven't really always been able to take to do that, but it's on my heart to do so. But when I do, I get to experience just this wonderful world of synchronicity and gratitude and kindness and uh, upliftment of each other through through knowledge and, and recognition of each other. Uh, just this really beautiful world that kind of coexists alongside everything else going on right now. <laughs> and uh I can't really see, you know, like there, uh, I, I read the questions like, you couldn't really give me enough money to stop doing what I'm doing because I can do what I do with, without anything. I don't need money to practice yoga or Qigong or Kung Fu or to teach students or to have any, you know, that's part of the modern world. And I do have to kind of live in that world, but I also get to live not in that world because of the practice, you know, because I get to, to go internal and have this, this uh, tool that I can use to experience the world uh, in an enjoyable way from my perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, yeah, that's well said and uh, um, yeah, a good, a good place to, to end. But, but, but before we do, I just wanted to highlight uh, something you, you said on a video that's on the front page of your yoga studios website. And I think you mentioned it uh, a couple times the, in our interview too, that there's really nothing better for your wellness than healthy coping mechanisms. Um, yeah, I, I concur wholeheartedly with that. And I think, um, uh, for anyone listening, it would, might be a useful exercise, uh, to really reflect on the ways that you cope with stress, anxiety, trauma, you know, et cetera. And, really be honest with yourself on whether or not kind of what you're doing, uh, is healthy. Um, right. 
because otherwise we can really fall into very self-abusive ways to to get away from what we're what we need to cope with right and those can become our lifestyle so it's good to know that there are things out there that are healthy coping mechanisms that uh if you're willing to do the work and to gain the knowledge that you get to carry those things around with you for the rest of your life um you don't have to keep paying a membership for them you know that it's just knowledge it's something within you that can be woken up and that uh that's useful to know yeah yeah that's great well glenn um this was great and thanks again for coming on oh thank you so much chase it is quite an honor to to be able to talk with you and and i'm really humbled by the opportunity to do this podcast no, and then uh, you know, and thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, where can people find you online or on social media if they want to learn more about Lionflow? Right. So I actually own two website names that lead to the same place: uh, array.yoga and lionflow.com. Both lead to the same website, right? So I teach an array of yogas, but Lionflow is my focus. So my studio is called Array Yoga Studio Lion Flow Yoga Headquarters. Um, but you can find me on that website, on Instagram, um, Lion Flow Yoga Man, and Array Yoga. And on Facebook, I am Glenn Brown <laughs> or Array Yoga Studio, whichever one you want to look for. <laughs> awesome. And I haven't really got into twi Twitter and all that stuff yet, so don't look for me on there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great. And, uh, and guys, oh, yes. you... YouTube. I also have YouTube Lion flow. Just look up Lion flow on YouTube. I'm there. Awesome. All right. Great. And uh, guys definitely go visit those. And, uh, you can also follow me on Instagram at chase Rosa four or on my website, uh, chase Rosa.com to get updates on new episodes and on my training for my endurance journey and events throughout the year. Um, you know, thanks Glenn again. And thanks also to everyone who's listening and I'll see you next time.